Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kevin. I want to thank you for joining us. We're wrapping up our series in the book of Esther today. And before we jump into the text, would you join me in prayer? Father, we know and trust that your spirit is in our midst and he's working. He's already working. He's always working. And we also know that you are eager to give good gifts to your children. And so we pray this morning, as we come to this text, as we come to your word together, Lord, I pray for people here who are very discouraged in life, that they might be filled with hope. I pray for people who are suffering and hurting, that you would give them strength and sustenance to sustain them. I pray for people here who are spiritually numb or whose hearts have grown cold towards you, towards your word, towards your church. Lord, I pray that your spirit would light a fire in them, would rekindle the flames. Ultimately, Father, I pray for all of us that as we sit under your word, we will continue to be formed by it so that we might become more and more the people that you desire for us to be we might grow more and more into the image of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we, part of the challenge of preaching Esther, it's 10 chapters, and we did it in four weeks, so we have to kind of fast forward through certain parts of it, and we can only highlight certain things, but we read from the very end of the book, and I want to fill in the last few chapters, kind of pick up where we left off last week, and then tell you the rest of the story, and then we'll step back and look at some of the big lessons that I think we can take from this book. But if you're new and you're new to the story of Esther, there's really four characters you need to know. There's King Xerxes, who goes by Ahasuerus in this text. He's the king over all of Persia. There's Esther, who by God's providence rises to become the queen. She's Jewish, although at this point the king doesn't know she's Jewish. Her cousin Mordecai is also Jewish. And then there's a man named Haman, who's the bad man. He's uh, the evil man in the story, and there was some beef between Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow to him, and so Haman decided he wanted to put all of the Jews in all of Persia to death. And so that's kind of the big plot line of the story. And what we saw last week is that Haman got so enraged that he built this 75-foot-high stake, and he wanted to go to Xerxes and get his permission to put Mordecai on the stake and just be done with him once and for all. Well, when he goes to see Xerxes, this kind of really interesting exchange takes place, and he ends up having to lead Mordecai around the city on the king's steed wearing the king's robe. And it's pretty humorous, and it's the beginning of Haman's downfall. But in chapter 7, we see the end of his downfall. You see, after that day where he was leading him around town, Haman joins King Xerxes and Esther for Esther's second feast. And it was at this feast that Esther wanted to plead with the king to rescind his decree that, that was sent out to annihilate all Jews. And so she, Esther did what she did once before. She made a good meal. She poured a bunch of glasses of wine. She got the king ready to make a request. And once he was there, we're told in chapter 7, verse 3, she says to the king, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted. 
Let my, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Now, you got to understand, Xerxes has no idea what she's talking about th at this point. Like, who's going to hurt the queen? She goes on, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? He's very confused. Someone's coming after my queen and her people? And then Esther, you can just see her pointing the finger. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And we're told that Xerxes, once he realizes that Haman had kind of tricked him into issuing this decree that would end up killing his wife, in a rage he storms out of the room into his garden, because he probably didn't want to hit anyone. And while he's gone, Haman knows he's in a bad spot. And so the text tells us that Esther was kind of sitting on a couch, and Haman fell on the couch, like pleading with her, pulling at her robe. And as he's doing this, at that exact moment, Xerxes walks back in, and he says, will, will he, will this Haman even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house. As the word left the mouth of the king that covered Haman's face, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. It's a brutal ending to a brutal man. And you think the story is going to be over there, but that's actually just at the end of chapter 7. There's a couple more chapters. Because in that day, when the king issued a decree, they couldn't rescind it. Once the king issued the decree, the decree stood. Because for the king to rescind the decree, that would be admitting that they, they did something wrong or they made a mistake. And I know we know nothing like that of leaders in our day, but in that day... Leaders were very, very hesitant to ever admit to making a mistake. And so Esther's pleading, will you please rescind this? And he says, I can't. What I can do is offer a second decree. And on the second decree, anyone who attempts to harm Jews on the appointed day, the Jews have every right to defend themselves. And so the day comes and God shows tremendous favor to the Jewish people. It's a violent and bloody day and a whole lot of Persians died. The author is really careful to note that the Jews, even though it would have been legal, they didn't take any of their enemies' wealth as plunder. The author wants us to see that the violence that took place here on, on the part of the Jews, it wasn't about getting rich, it wasn't about power, it was about self-defense. And so after all of these things happen, the Jews in Persia throw a feast called Purim, and it's named after, we read that in the we just read that it's named after the poor or the dice that Haman threw to determine the date that the annihilation would take place. And the very end of the book, pretty much an entire chapter, tells us that Esther and Mordecai together instituted this feast into the religious calendar. And this feast of Purim is still celebrated among Jewish people to this very day, 2,500 years later. It's a fascinating story. And there's a couple of themes that are woven throughout. One of the major themes in Esther is the theme of divine reversal. 
that you can go through the text and you can watch things kind of go from one extreme to the other extreme. You, you see the Jews who were supposed to be annihilated by the Persians end up being the ones who do the annihilating. You see you know, Haman, who was number two over all of the kingdom, wanting to put to death Mordecai, but in the end, Haman's the one who dies and Mordecai becomes number two in the kingdom. There's a number of divine reversals. But I think for us, maybe the most important divine reversal to see is maybe the easiest one to overlook. And that's the divine reversal that we see in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. The start of the book, they're in a place of spiritual complacency and compromise. And they end the book being people marked by courage and conviction, passion, and boldness. They were transformed. As I've looked at their story and considering our story, they went through some kind of, they experienced some kind of renewal that utterly transformed their lives. And so what I want to do with our time together, the time we have left, is look at this renewal. And I want to talk specifically about why we need renewal, who renewal comes through, number two, and then three, how we can seek it. Why we need it, who it comes through, how we can seek it. The reason we chose to preach through Esther and Daniel, it, which we start next week, is because we felt like both of these books were very timely for us as a people in this culture. Both books teach us about life in exile. In both books, the Jewish people find themselves living as strangers in a strange land. They're living in a culture that didn't understand their faith and at times was downright opposed to their faith. And so we wanted to go to this book and, and ask, what does this teach us about following Jesus in a culture that's becoming increasingly faithless and hostile to our faith? Our culture's changed a lot in the last 50 years. Everyone's saying we're moving into a post-Christian and secular age. The veneer of Christianity that was laid over our country for centuries has started to fade, crack, and peel, and it's going to get, at least from my perspective, it sure seems like it's going to get a lot harder to follow Jesus in the years to come in this culture than it's ever been before. Just holding Orthodox Christian beliefs that have been held for 2,000 years will push us to the margins of society and to the margins of many people's minds, believing that, number one, all people are sinners by nature and choice and deserving of judgment. Number two, believing that there is only one name given to us under heaven whereby we can be saved, and that's Jesus, that there's, there's not many paths, there's only one man. Believing and holding to what God's word says about sexuality and gender, or even being a people marked by mercy and grace and a culture that feeds off of outrage and judgment. How do we do this well? And as we were planning this series, I was eager to examine, all right, how do we navigate marginalization, persecution, seeing these as kind of real threats on the horizon? But as I studied Esther, I realized that there's a greater threat facing us as a people, a threat greater than marginalization or persecution. And that threat is the threat of assimilation. And what we see in Esther 
is that the, the current of culture became so strong that it pretty much swept Esther and Mordecai up in its wake. And as we look to the future, the greatest danger probably facing the church, it's not that we'll be persecuted. <laughs> Study church history. When persecution comes, it's like rain on dry ground. The church tends to flourish. The greatest danger is that we will compromise, that our hearts will grow cold, and that we'll end up looking no different than the rest of the world. And this was the temptation that Mordecai and Esther faced. And for them, it was actually a brand new temptation. You know, throughout the Old Testament, if you were Jewish, you never really had a choice about being Jewish. You didn't grow up saying, well, my parents were Jewish, but I'm a little more open-minded or, or I'm kind of into that. No, you didn't have a choice. It was all you ever knew. Even if you grew up when you were, you know, when the Jews were living in Egypt, they were still sequestered off into ghettos. It was the only culture. When they moved into Canaan, they still only knew their culture. They fought against all the other cultures. But all of this changed when they went into exile. Rabbi Yoram Hazoni writes, It was only after the dispersal throughout Babylonia and Persia that an individual born as a Jew found himself in immediate, constant, and personal contact with other possible identities. And they had to choose for themselves whether Jewishness would be something he would maintain or something he would hide. And what we see at the beginning of the book is Mordecai and Esther, they're like third, three generations in to the Jews living in Persia. And so they've grown up there and they know something about their Jewish heritage. But for them, they're pretty well assimilated. And we know this because, number one, they're living morally and spiritually ambiguous lives. Number two, they're concealing their Jewish identity. They're spiritually complacent. They're compromised. That's how the story begins. But then the story ends with Esther and Mordecai leading the Jews in Persia through a spiritual awakening. Mordecai, he's no longer you know, ashamed or trying to hide his faith and heritage. It's interesting if you read through the whole book, the first few chapters he's known as Mordecai, and then there's a turning point, and from then on, every time he's referred to, he's referred to as Mordecai the Jew. He's not ashamed anymore. Or Esther. Throughout most of the books, she's known as Esther or Queen Esther. But then you get to the very end of chapter 9, and her Jewish identity comes out. She's known as Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail. See, Mordecai and Esther, they recovered their identity and their distinct calling, and that enabled them to live into the calling God had for them in Persia as a distinct and prophetic counterculture. That's how the book ends. Verse 3 of chapter 10. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. You see the difference? They start ashamed, scared, just kind of going along. And at the end, both Esther and Mordecai, there's courage there's conviction. And Mordecai, he's number two in Xerxes' kingdom, but he's using his power and his influence for the good of his people and the good of the whole. Something happened. They were renewed. They, they discovered God in a way that they had never seen him before. Their faith, which up to that point 
hadn't played much of a role in their lives, all of a sudden became real to them. And there's a lesson here for us. The way forward in a hostile culture, it's not through assimilation or withdrawal, it's through renewal. We don't need to worry so much about whether or not we should advance or retreat. What we really need to worry about and concern ourselves with is that we might have an inward deepening in our knowledge of God and our love of God. For most of our country's history, in most places, it was easier to identify as a Christian than to not identify as a Christian. That's all changing. And honestly, there was decades where you could make it in the church and in the faith, just kind of coasting off of the faith and obedience of other people. What we see in Esther's story is that in the midst of a coming storm, you need roots that grow down deep. You can't just lean on other people. Faith has to become your own. We, we need to be reawakened, like Esther and Mordecai, to God's promises and his purposes. And we need to be renewed, not just in our love and devotion to him, but even more, his love and devotion for us. The faith handed down needs to become our own. And I'm guessing that's what most of us want. Like in our best moments, I think if I were to ask you, do you want to be a person of complacency and compromise or courage or conviction? Guessing most of us are saying, I'd like to be courage and conviction. I want my life to be a blessing. I, I want to be able to follow Jesus with boldness in a way that really is a blessing, even if I'm going to face opposition. That comes through renewal. It comes through encountering the living God in your own life. That's why we need it. Who does renewal come to? Point two. It's so interesting that God chooses to bring about this renewal first in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, and then from them all of the Jews in Persia. And the reason it's interesting to me is that neither Esther nor Mordecai were in what we would call vocational ministry. Neither of them were prophets, priests, or kings. Esther was a queen, but it was in Persia, not in God's kingdom. They don't have any spiritual authority. They didn't go to seminary. They probably didn't know their Bibles very well at all. And yet God said, renewal needs to happen. Who am I going to pick? I'm going to pick these two. And I'm going to see it happen through these two. People who weren't living robust spiritual lives, people who weren't seeking spiritual leadership. They're just ordinary people. And yet by God's grace, by providence, and through a bit of suffering, they end up leading. They come alive spiritually, and then they lead a movement of spiritual renewal. God uses them. I say all that to say, I've studied renewal movements and revivals throughout church history, and one of the common denominators of them all, number one is prayer, and number two is they always belong to the people, not just the pastors. When renewal comes upon a church, it's not primarily the work of the pastors, it's primarily through the work of the people. To put it another way, if we really want to see God pour out his spirit in a fresh way in our midst, 
It's not going to come primarily through dynamic preaching and great music, even though our music here is amazing. Every week, if we could do it, I think we could do it with how good our music is. But that's not how it's going to happen. Spiritual renewal, it comes when, quote-unquote, ordinary Christians are reawakened to God's promises, to his presence. People who, for years, kind of were living and there was a fog, and it's like the fog lifts. And they see a horizon of possibilities of what God could do in their life, in their family, in their neighborhood, in their church. And they start to dream big dreams. They start to pray big prayers. And they seek his face. It's ordinary, not celebrities. Not celebrity preachers, it's ordinary men and women who are reawakened to God's promises and his purposes. And I firmly believe that if we are going to see this spiritual renewal, it's going to require both men and women. And there is, amen, there is a renewed discussion in some circles. If you know nothing about this, be happy. Social media can be a cancer. But there's a renewed discussion about the role of women in the church. And it's an important discussion. What I find, though, is often this discussion quickly devolves into very, like, into to details and particulars, which are important. But typically, when I hear people talk about it, very few people communicate God's greater vision. And when we go to the scriptures, there are two truths that we have to hold together about men and women in the church. Truth number one, men and women were both created in the image of God with equal dignity, value, and worth. There's no hierarchy in value. Equal. The second truth is that God created men and women differently. Like they're distinct. They're different from one another. And these differences were not by God designed to create conflict, but actually to complement one another. And when I say complement, I don't mean the dress looks nice on you. I mean like chocolate and peanut butter complement each other. They enhance and they draw out the best in each other. And if we are going to honor God and his word, we have to learn how to hold both of these truths together, the dignity and the distinction. And I can't speak to every church. I can't speak to every situation, and I don't want to, but I can speak to our church and our history. And oftentimes at Sojourn, we have undervalued women and their voices in our midst. Oftentimes we've been so afraid of losing the distinction that giving the benefit of the doubt that the dignity piece gets lost. And, it, you know, I want you to hear this. I want you to think of us with charitably. You know, think the best of us until you're proven wrong. But what happens is we've, we live in this culture which wants to eliminate any notion of gender, any notion of a difference between male and female. And so what happens in a church like ours that loves the Bible, loves God's word, wants to be grounded in God's word, we see that. And we say, we don't want to fall into that trap. That's a bad trap. They're denying God's design. 
And so, as is often, this happens with theological conservatives, political conservatives, all kinds of conservatives, they think the right move is, well, let's stay as far away from that line as possible, because that's where it's safe. The problem is there isn't one line, there's two lines. And the problem is that a life of faithfulness, it's never, never portrayed in the Bible as hunkering down in a fortress as far away from any danger as possible. A life of faithfulness is actually more like a path, and there are ditches on both sides that you can easily fall into. So yes, there's a ditch where you can say, hey, we're eliminating all distinctions between men and women, and we're so terrified of people who've fallen into that ditch that we stay as far away, and then the next thing you know, the church topples over. And women, their voices get lost. Their gifts get lost. Not lost entirely, they get minimized. And Women suffer because they can't live into the God-given calling God has given them. And men suffer too. Because they're trying to... <laughs> You know, they're, they're trying to, to play with half a deck. And the church suffers and it becomes anemic. In the New Testament, we see two really important things that speak to this. Number one, the Holy Spirit empowers all believers, men and women. And there's not like a distinction. He empowers them all. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts to all believers. And there's not a distinction in gifts. Have you ever noticed that? It's not, well, the Holy Spirit says, all right, to the women, I'm going to give the gift of homemaking, hospitality, and child rearing. And then to the men, I'm going to give the gift of wisdom and discernment and knowledge and teaching and leadership. Now, I want to be really careful. These gifts are great. Hospitality is great. I love hospitality. I like being a dad. I like raising my children. I'm not minimizing these gifts. What I am saying is in the church, oftentimes, we have what I would say it's been more influenced by part of our country's history than the scripture. This is the role of women. They do these two or three things in the church. We have men saying, well, the woman's role is in the home. Men need to be out doing all. And then we have an entire generation of men who've been raised with father issues. Is that ironic to anyone else? We have a generation of women who live in fear in the church, wondering, am I allowed to say this? Am I not allowed to say this? Am I crossing some line I shouldn't cross? And if you live in fear long enough, you just keep your mouth shut because it's just easier. But everyone suffers. And I say all of this in light of, if we are going to move forward with strength in the coming years in this culture, it's not going to be through a celebrity preacher. It's going to be through God's people, empowered by his spirit, men and women together, using the gifts God has given them, the spirit that he has put in their lives. And Esther, Esther is such a great example of this. The book of Esther, who's the main character in the book of Esther? Esther, but only by a hair. If you actually look, they're both mentioned by name almost an equal number of times. Esther's mentioned 55 times, Mordecai's 52. That's why she gets the title. But they offer a great paradigm. I know some of you are uncomfortable with this. 
You're really concerned. What does this mean? Listen. Listen to this commentary. The story of Esther provides an example of a man and a woman working together where the complementary circumstances and qualities of each were required to achieve God's purpose. Neither of them held an official religious office. Nevertheless, through Esther and Mordecai together, God providentially worked to fulfill his covenant promise. Their involvement in thwarting Haman's plan and in sharing authority as leaders in the Jewish community after his downfall is so mutual that it is difficult to isolate their roles. One would not have succeeded without the other. We are not going to succeed moving forward with strength being a faithful prophetic witness in the years to come unless men and women bring the best of who they are, the best of their gifts to the church, and unless the church enables that, supports that, and gets behind that. And so I apologize to the ladies in our church and to the young girls in our church. Like, we need you. We need you to step into your God-given calling to embrace the gifts God has given you so that we can actually navigate this next generation and this next 50, 100 years, and we can model a better way. I will say we're working to change. We've sought the office of deacon in our church, which is God-given office. It kind of fell to the wayside. We've brought it back, put a priority on it, re-elevated it. Last week, for the first time, I think in our history, our elders, who are all men, and our deacons, who are men and women, they got together to talk, to strategize, and to pray together about our future as a church. I was talking with Pastor Chad afterwards. I said, that's one of the greatest meetings we've ever had. There are a whole bunch of voices lifting up in prayer together. If we're going to experience renewal in the midst of this culture, it's, coming, it's going to be on everyone's shoulders, not just the men not just the pastors, but everyone. We need all hands on deck. That's the who. Why we need it? Because we need roots to grow down deep when the hurricane comes. Who it belongs to, it belongs to all of us. And then three, how do we, how do we actually find spiritual renewal? And I've read a lot of books on revival over the last... Uh, year or so. Revivals are fascinating to me. Revivals happen when God comes and visits his people in a way that they just never expected, they weren't prepared for. I know a lot of you grew up going to revivals on a Sunday night or whatever. That's not a revival. That's just extra church. <laughs> revival is when God visits his people in a powerful way. And you can read stories about different revivals throughout history, and they're fascinating. And man, they stir my heart, and I so long, like God do that here. But it's not something God does very often. It's something that he does on his own accord, and there are people who have been much more faithful than I or we who have prayed and prayed, and they've never seen it. It's a gift God occasionally visits on his people. So while I long for a revival, I hope for a renewal. And renewal is kind of like revival, but it's on a, a very personal scale. It's when it happens in individuals' lives. 
And renewal usually comes not through a dramatic event, a dramatic healing or a vision, although God can use those things. Renewal usually comes through very ordinary means, remembering, recentering, reflecting on who God is and what he's done and what he's promised. And that's the meaning of the feast. And that's why the book of Esther ends and goes into such great detail about this feast of Purim. And if you read it, it's, you can tell there's a real sense of urgency on Esther and Mordecai's part. Verse 26 through 29, we read, Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year and the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. And it's a bit mouthful, but really what they're saying here, as loud as they can, this feast, we should never, ever, 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 ever not do it. We need to never, ever forget what has happened in our midst. And for 2,500 years, it has. But they're, Esther and Mordecai, they're like, what God has done, it's so important. And you know, we were wandering aimlessly. Then he saved us and redeemed us. We need to remember the faithfulness of God. Now, what I find ironic about this, that's the right word, is it's not as if God didn't already give them a whole slew of feasts and festivals to celebrate as Jewish people to remember his faithfulness. I took a Hebrew class in college, and I was the only Gentile in the class. I've never had more classes canceled in my life. It was like every other week, class was canceled. Why? Because they're celebrating a Jewish holiday. Like the Jewish calendar is filled with holidays. So it's fascinating to me that Esther and Mordecai say, you know what, we need another one. It's also fascinating because God instituted all of those. There are ones God handed down. And this was one that they said, no, 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 we need to do this one. I love what Pastor Mike said. He says that, Purim wasn't just another holiday or feast that the Jews added to the calendar. Purim was a celebration of being reawakened to who God is and what he has done. And really, Purim, it was a renewal of all of the other festivals. It was them becoming awake to God and then all of a sudden going back and saying, all of these other things are meaningful too. Now we see, before they were just ritual before we just ate this or we didn't eat that, now we see the importance. Using a little bit of holy imagination, I think they instituted Purim because they knew all of these holidays, but they totally lost their meaning. They'd become legalistic duties and obligations, but now God had become real. They wanted to celebrate God becoming real, and that actually brought all kinds of meaning to all of the other festivals. But that's what 
renewal always is. It's a recovery of what's lost. It's taking something that, that was once old, maybe something that's grown stale in your mind, and discovering it afresh. We've talked a bit over the last several months about the importance of practices and disciplines and, and habits. And I know for many people, spiritual practices such as Bible reading, prayer, silence, fasting, they can be really hard. And I know some of you, they were handed down to you when you were young in your faith. You were told it's really important to have a quiet time every day. And then something happened and you didn't have one. And then you felt bad. And then all of a sudden guilt became associated with it. And the next thing you know, spiritual disciplines turned into just kind of a law that you felt like you had to obey. And you felt really, really bad about because you didn't obey it the way you should. And then maybe you got to some point in your life where in the name of Christian freedom, you just gave them up. But if the book of Esther teaches us anything, it teaches us that we are all being formed all the time. You might think you're set in your ways. We are, we are like a fresh container of Play-Doh. Right when it comes out, very easily formed. It doesn't take much to form us one way or another. And we're going to be formed by something. The shows we watch, the activities we engage in, the people we surround ourselves with, they all form us. You recognize that, right? If every day you go home and watch Netflix for four hours before bed, that's forming you. It's forming not just like your views on the world, although it's that, it's also forming your affections and your loves and your desires. I can be perfectly content with my life and then I can watch a couple of extraordinary, amazing houses episodes on Netflix and all of a sudden I'm not grateful for my house at all. I mean, we have a very little dining room, five kids, once Hank's out of the high chair, I don't even know if we're going to all be able to get around the table. We're going to have to move our dining room into a living room. And in my mind, it's like, we, we need more. We need bigger. I don't watch the show, I don't typically think that. That's just one kind of easy example. But if every day we spend hours watching shows, you know, they're going to shape how we think. They're going to shape what we love, how we spend our time, how we understand the good life. We're going to be formed by them. We're going to be formed by our jobs, our relationships. And so if we really want to be formed into people who love God, who know his promises, and who are grounded in his promises, it's going to take more than coming to church once a week, two or three weeks a month. It's got to become your own, like it did for Mordecai and Esther. When you do that, that's when you can live a very, very beautiful and powerful life. But when we don't do that, we all suffer, and I suffer. You know, there's a principle in leadership and management that says your system is perfectly designed to yield the results you are getting. <laughs> Nothing has been more convicting in being a leader there's all these problems in the organization. You know, they're actually, the organization is designed to produce these problems. And so if we're fearful, if we're afraid, if we're greedy, 
if we're never satisfied with anything, like what in the design, how we design our days, how might it be producing that? And I don't want to minimize the reality of suffering or the dark night of the soul. All I'm saying is that our spiritual lives are often the way they are because of what we are or aren't putting into our life. And I don't say that to guilt you or to beat you over the head or to make you feel miserable. I know there are so many of you here, you want to change. You have things in your life you desperately want to change. You have sins that you desperately want to get rid of. And I'm telling you, it's not something that will change in the moment. It's something that changes in all of life because that's where you're formed. We're entering the summer, and I know summer can sometimes be different for people, their, their rhythms and their calendar, but summer can be a great time to try something new, to step into a new rhythm, because we need you. The church needs you. I have great hope for the future, but that hope is not because there's going to be a whole bunch of people, although that would be great if that happened, but rather the people who get refined in the fire of this culture are going to be deeper people who lead lives that are inexplicable and undeniably attractive to the world around them. As we move to the Lord's table, we're reminded that we're forgetful and that God knows we're forgetful. And so the night of Jesus' betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood that's poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the New Testament, we're told that as often as we gather, we should take part in this because we're forgetful. Because like Esther and Mordecai, we can easily forget what God has done throughout history. So as we come to the table, I pray if you put your faith in Christ, you might celebrate the fact that you are loved. You are a child of God and nothing will change that. But I pray as you feed on Christ's body and his blood, I pray that you would find energy and a vision for a life of greater maturity and deeper, deeper discipleship. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave himself for you. Let me pray.